0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, CIIS's Natalie Metz explores the potential that psychedelics hold for the future of medicine. This talk was recorded on March 8, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.
1: Thank you, CIIS, for hosting me this evening. And thank you all for being here, for taking the time out of your day and out of your evening and for getting out of bed for that matter. Sometimes uh, it takes a lot of effort just to do that. So thank you for being here. Welcome to the near future. It's time to go to the doctor. Yet this isn't an appointment for a routine physical or a visit to just any specialist. Today, you are going to see your psychedelic doctor. It's a beautiful morning and you wake up well rested, having dreamt deeply and peacefully. You start to assemble a bag to take with you, including your list of intentions for today's session, perhaps an item to place on the altar, or photos of loved ones. You pack a coconut water, your favorite fruit, and an herbal elixir specially formulated to help your system ease into today's session. You contemplate where you are in your healing journey and wonder, what will be the psychedelic medicine of choice today? Perhaps you are a combat veteran, a rape victim, or a displaced refugee struggling with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Perhaps, Perhaps you are an opioid addict or an abuser of tobacco or alcohol, yearning to get sober. Perhaps you are grieving the loss of a parent, a child, a friend or life partner. Perhaps you are experiencing a debilitating depression or anxiety related to a serious health condition. Or perhaps you want to explore an aspect of your creativity or work on a long-standing engineering problem. Or perhaps you simply want to explore the nature of consciousness itself. Your psychedelic doctor will listen to your desires and concerns. Your psychedelic doctor will help you to examine the goals you have for your life, as well as the challenges that you experience. Your psychedelic doctor will choose the most indicated medicine to help you today and discuss the ways that you can partner together to minimize risks and optimize benefits. Your session may take place in a cozy journey room or outside in nature. Your psychedelic doctor may offer music, aromatherapy, bodywork, or sound healing to support you in your journey today. And your psychedelic doctor will take notes of important themes that arise for you, as well as help you to the restroom or fetch you a blanket. Your psychedelic doctor is a highly skilled guide trained to help you navigate the terrain you will traverse today in your session with the accompaniment of this sacred technology. Thanks to years of experimentation by courageous pioneers from all walks of life, psychedelic medicines are now legally available. And you are excited to explore their creative and therapeutic potentials. Welcome back to 2017. While psychedelic, (laughs) that's the near future. (laughs) While psychedelic medicines are not yet legal in the United States, current medical research around the world is demonstrating the promise of psychedelic healing and forging new directions for the future of medicine. Clinical trials sponsored by the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, the Hefter Institute, the Beckley Foundation, and the USONA Institute at prestigious institutions such as Johns Hopkins, UCLA, NYU, University of Wisconsin-Madison, Imperial College London, and more, are exploring the therapeutic value of psychedelics with very promising results. These studies are demonstrating safety, as well as efficacy for the health conditions being treated. And long-term follow-ups to date are showing lasting benefits. Ayahuasca, Ibogaine, psilocybin, ketamine, and MDMA are several of the agents being studied as therapeutic adjuncts for conditions such as PTSD, depression, terminal anxiety, and substance abuse, all of which do not have reliably effective treatments available. Ayahuasca, a brew made from at least two Amazonian plants, is showing promise in the treatment of substance abuse. Ibogaine a derivative of a West African plant, is specifically effective in the treatment of opioid addiction. Ketamine, a synthetic psychoactive pain reliever, is helping people with treatment-resistant depression. MDMA, a a semi-synthetic stimulant often referred to or associated with ecstasy, is offering patients long-term relief from their PTSD. And psilocybin, known to be the active component in many psychoactive mushrooms, is helping to alleviate existential anxiety and depression in patients with a terminal diagnosis, as well as helping people to stop tobacco, cocaine, and alcohol abuse. Delics are inherently non-toxic and non-addictive, and paying attention to several important constructs can increase the potential for a safe and beneficial experience. For example, factors such as one's mindset, preparation for the experience, the setting or container in which the experience occurs, the dosage and quality of the substance, the presence of a guide, and appropriate integration optimize the potential for a safe and beneficial experience and facilitate the incorporation of the insights gained and the material accessed into daily life. Psychedelics are currently being studied for a relatively small number of health conditions and may have utility in supporting many aspects of human health as well as the health of the planet on which we live. We need this type of help right here, right now. The United States is in a disease crisis. A disease crisis which is characterized by high health care expenditures, high rates of chronic conditions, many of which are considered preventable, in a burdened system with limited resources, informed by a paradigm of reductionism and mechanistic materialism, whose primary tools are potentially toxic drugs and surgery. In short, while medicine in the U.S. has made huge strides in prolonging life with heroic measures, it has done little to successfully address chronic diseases such as diabetes, cancer, and heart disease, let alone mental health conditions such as depression, anxiety, and PTSD. A new form of medicine is needed, one that's based on a holistic foundation of individualized care, utilizing non-toxic remedies, and incorporating the cutting-edge tools of consciousness and transformation, such as psychedelics. To illustrate the disease crisis in the U.S., let's look at some statistics from leading institutions in the United States. The CDC, or Centers for Disease Control, estimated that in 2014, the U.S. spent $2.6 trillion in healthcare expenditures, 38% of which went to hospital visits, 24% to physician services, 6% to nursing care, and 12% or $297.7 billion to prescription drugs. In 2014, 12.7% of adults were found to have diabetes, had hypertension, or high blood pressure, and 37.7% were considered obese. That's a 15% increase in obesity since 1994. So 20 years. Children were found to have a growing epidemic of obesity, with 8.9% of the children aged 2 to 5 years old being obese, that number increasing to 17.5% between 6 and 11-year-olds, and 20.5% between the ages of 12 and 19. In addition, only 20% of adults surveyed met the physical activity guidelines for Americans that recommend at least 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity per week and muscle strengthening activities two days per week. The top five leading causes of death reported in 2014 were heart disease, cancer, respiratory disease, accidents, and stroke. This data was critiqued by researchers from Johns Hopkins in an article published in the British Medical Journal in May of 2016, where they documented 251,000, or 9.5% of the deaths in the U.S., as results of medical errors, implicating medical care as the third leading cause of death in the U.S., The National Institute of Mental Health in 2015 found that 18% of the U.S. adult population reported anxiety, 6.7% suffering from depression, with 16.1 million people in 2015 reporting at least one major depressive episode, 3.5% of the population reported post-traumatic stress disorder. This number is much higher in the veteran population. Researchers from the Department of Veteran Affairs and Baylor College of Medicine estimate a lifetime prevalence of up to 31% of combat-related PTSD in veterans. NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, in 2015 said that Alcohol and tobacco abuse combined accounted for over $500 billion in costs related to crime, lost work productivity, and health care expenditures. And SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, stated in 2015 that 119 million adults over the age of 20 years old, that's 44.5% of the population, used prescription psychotherapeutic medications, with 18.9 million of them reporting intentionally misusing them. We have an overweight, anxious, and depressed population struggling with addiction, exercising inadequately, spending lots of money on drugs, and plagued by death of the heart. The U.S. disease crisis is reflective of the planet's ecological crisis. Climate change and environmental toxicity are having devastating effects on the biosphere, evidenced by rapid decline in biodiversity and increased rates of extinction. According to NASA, climate change is real. Carbon dioxide is at its highest in 650,000 years, sustaining an exponential increase since 1950. Exponential meaning that the rate of change gets faster and faster and faster. Global temperature increased 1.7 degrees Fahrenheit since 1880, with nine of the 10 warmest years on record occurring since 2000. Global temperatures are forecasted to rise 2.5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit over the next century. The global average sea level increased 7 inches in the past 100 years, along with acidification of the ocean and melting of sea and land ices. 18 or more, scientific associations deg- agree that the main cause of climate change is the human expansion of the greenhouse effect, secondary to liberation of carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide from fossil fuel burning, ma- biomass burning, deforestation, decomposition of waste in landfills, and mass util- utilization of fertilizers in agriculture. The Society of Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry the World Health Organization, the United Nations Environment Program, uh, the United Nations Environment Program, and the Environmental Working Group have all turned their attention to the role of climate change and environmental toxicity in the health of humans and animals. Anthony McMichael, an Australian epidemiologist, published multiple articles on the effect of climate change on human health, including increased death rates from heat stroke, decreased availability of food microbial proliferation and changes in vector pathogen host relationships. Unfortunately, the long-term combined effects of climate change and environmental toxicity are unknown and likely underconsidered in healthcare. In 2009, the Environmental Working Group found 232 chemicals in the umbilical cord blood of 10 newborn babies in the United States, including BPA, heavy metals and dioxins. All of these compounds are known to have serious deleterious health effects, including causing cancer, disrupting endocrine function, impairing brain development and neurological function, and are generated toxins, such as industrial pollutants and pesticides, are now present in the environment at an unprecedented level. And many scientists believe we are moving towards the sixth mass extinction. CIIS Professor of Cosmology, Brian Swim, has said, We are living in a modern culture which extinguishes life and does not have context to imagine extinction. It is as if our global human culture has an incredible blind spot that enables the continual destruction of the environment without any awareness that such destruction is possible, unpredictable, and ultimately self-sabotaging. As we do unto others, we do unto ourselves. As Chief Seattle said in a letter to President Franklin Pierce in 1855, this we know, the earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. Whatever befalls the earth befalls the sons of the earth. Man did not weave the the web of life. He is merely a strand in it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. As the climate changes and toxins are spewed into the environment, they inevitably end up back in our tissues. For the human body is a microcosmic reflection of the macrocosmic organism Gaia. Perhaps with the assistance of psychedelic medicines, we can awaken to new insights about preserving and promoting the health of humans and the planet alike. Where does the mindset that enables the destruction of the planet and ultimately our own bodies arise from? Richard Louvre, author of Last Child in the Woods, suggests that we suffer from nature deficit disorder, that our lack of contact with nature is making us sick, and fosters a mentality which makes it easier to exploit and disregard the natural environment, leading to a degraded and toxic state for the planet and its inhabitants. Perhaps we are deficient in practices of ritual and ceremony, including the conscious use of psychedelics and the exploration of multiple states of consciousness. In a conversation with my mentor, Dr. Jim Sensenig, he asked me, why is our culture so afraid of expanded states of consciousness? Every culture has found them at least utilitarian, if not necessary. Editors Roger Walsh and Charlie Grobe state in the book, Higher Wisdom, Eminent Elders Explore the Continuing Impact of Psychedelics, many of the world's societies are polyphasic, meaning that they actively explore and derive their understanding of reality from multiple states of consciousness, including dreams, drugs, meditation, yoga, or trance, in addition to the normal waking state. By contrast, the West has been primarily monophasic, valuing and deriving its view of reality solely from our usual waking state. Perhaps we are estranged from indigenous worldviews, the worldviews that all of our ancestors somewhere along the way kept. Views which hold that all beings in the universe are inherently sacred, interrelated, and to be cared for within a complex and reciprocal web of respect and mutuality. Indigenous cultures worldwide, from Siberia to the Amazon, have utilized psychoactive plants and fungi, such as ayahuasca and mushrooms, for millennia. Both to facilitate access to information for healing, divination and community building, as well as to explore the nature of consciousness. Psychoactive plants, fungi, and animal-derived substances have been called psychedelics, a word often interpreted to mean mind-manifesting or soul-manifesting. Psychedelic was coined by psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond in 1957, born of a conversation with writer and philosopher Aldous Huxley, as they each sought a name for the experience elucidated by LSD. In a letter to Osmond, Huxley wrote, "To make this mundane world sublime, take half a gram fan aerothyme." <laughs> fan being a term he coined to mean spirit manifesting. Osmond responded, "To fathom hell or soar angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic." <laughs> Other words in common use include entheogen and ecodelic. Entheogen, coined by Karl Ruck, scholar of mythology and religion, refers to a substance that generates contact with the divine within. Richard Doyle, author of Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex, Plants, and the Evolution of the Noosphere, has introduced the term ecodelic, A psychoactive substance which enables us to perceive ourselves as part of a complex web of relationships that includes not only every one of us but all of life and ultimately the entire cosmos. Psychedelics, entheogens, and or ecodelics can occasion mystical experiences, enhance our connection with the universe at large, and help us to access holotropic states of consciousness. Holotropic is a term coined by psychiatrist and LSD psychotherapy pioneer Stanislav Grof to to describe states of consciousness that orient us towards wholeness of body, mind, and spirit, with potential for facilitating healing on the individual and collective levels. Consider for a moment that the word sacred indicates something that demands or is worthy of reverence. Bill Richards author of Sacred Knowledge, Psychedelics and Religious Experience, states that mystical consciousness is an unspeakably vast, dynamic, magnificent, and profoundly meaningful state of awareness that remains in the memory banks of those who witness it. He goes on to say that all of the great world religions have words that point toward this highly desired state of spiritual awareness, such as Samadhi in Hinduism, nirvana, and Buddhism, and the beatific vision in Christianity, to name a few. He further elucidates a common core of characteristics of mystical states of consciousness, which reliably include descriptions of unity, transcendence of time and space, intuitive knowledge, sacredness, deeply felt positive mood, and ineffability. In other words, it's really hard to describe. (laughs) There are two main approaches to legally integrating psychedelics into modern society right now, the path of religion and the path of medicine. In 2006, Roland Griffiths and other researchers at Johns Hopkins and the Council for Spiritual Practices published the results of a clinical trial demonstrating that psilocybin, the active component of magic mushrooms, occasioned mystical states that had substantial personal meaning and spiritual significance, and attributed to the experience sustained positive changes in attitudes and behavior consistent with changes rated by community observers. Not only did study participants report benefit, their families and friends did so as well. The legal religious use of the psychoactive cactus peyote by groups such as the Native American Church and the South American brew ayahuasca by the Santo Daime and the Uñao de Vegetal churches in the U.S. is known to bring about mystical states of consciousness and primary religious experiences, although they do not necessarily result in a spiritual way of being. As Aldous Huxley put it, It goes without saying that this kind of temporary self-transcendence is no guarantee of permanent enlightenment or lasting improvement of conduct. It is a gratuitous grace, which is neither necessary nor sufficient for salvation, but which, if properly used, can be enormously helpful to those who have received it. Despite their value for religious and spiritual purposes, Most psychedelics have, in fact, been placed in Schedule 1 by the DEA, indicating that they have no medical value and have a high potential for toxicity and abuse, all of which are simply untrue. The 1950s, 60s, and 70s were the most fruitful decades of psychedelic research worldwide, with thousands of LSD studies published, demonstrating its benefit and potential as a tool for psychotherapy, while also documenting its effects on metabolism, time perception, and exploring its potency as a tool for addressing addiction. In fact, one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous was a strong advocate of bringing LSD psychotherapy to AA, but it was not quite well received. In 1970, President Nixon introduced the Controlled Substances Act in the United States. Rendering psilocybin, mescaline, LST, and DMT illegal. The act effectively ended all government-sanctioned psychedelic research and what was once a flood diminished to a trickle and remained that way for the following three decades. Due to a variety of fortuitous factors, serendipity, hope, and loss of persistent dedicated effort, The U.S. is now celebrating a psychedelic spring, a renaissance, a resurgence of inspiring research in the past two decades. In the United States, MDMA and psilocybin are making great advances in FDA-approved clinical trials. All pharmaceutical drugs in development are screened through the following protocol progressing from phase 1 to phase 2 to phase 3 and potentially phase 4 of clinical trials. In phase 1, researchers test a new drug and a small group of people for the first time to evaluate its safety and determine a safe dosage range and identify any potentially toxic side effects. In phase 2, the drug is given to a larger group of people to see if it is effective for a particular condition and to further evaluate its safety. So currently, um, MDMA and psilocybin have come through this phase of research. They've demonstrated safety in phase one studies, and they have also now demonstrated safety again and efficacy for specific conditions in phase two trials. Phase three, the drug is given to a large group of people to confirm its effectiveness for said therapy, therapeutic intervention, to continue to to monitor side effects, to compare it to other commonly used treatments, and to collect information that will continue to allow the drug to be utilized safely. Once a drug passes through phase three studies, it's possible that it can either be approved to go to market or that it can be, in the case of psychedelics, rescheduled. So again, right now, psilocybin, MDMA, all the psychedelics, pretty much, are in Schedule 1, meaning that they're highly illegal, they are thought to have no medical benefit and to be incredibly toxic and uh, have a high potential for toxicity and abuse. Again, MDMA and psilocybin have made it through Phase 1 and Phase 2 trials with astounding results. And they are progressing forward. And hopefully we will see the rescheduling of those substances and many more so that they will be moved out of Schedule 1 and put into hopefully Schedule 3 or beyond so that we'll be able to access them more. If a drug passes through Phase 3 studies and is either approved or rescheduled, then it will persist in a state of Phase 4 studies. These are done after the, the drug has been marketed to continue to gather information about the drug's effect in various populations, as well as any side effects that might be associated with long-term use. In the past six months, researchers from MAPS and the Hefter Institute have had very favorable meetings with the FDA. It's been really fantastic to um, be privy to some of those early conversations uh, where We've gotten some of the first uh, emails here in the CIS community about the successful meetings that MAPS and After have had with the FDA. Planning is underway to move psilocybin and, and MDMA um, into phase three clinical trials right now. And there's also hope for expanded access as well. Expanded access, which is also called compassionate use, provides a pathway for patients to gain access to still investigational drugs before the FDA provides full approval. According to MAPS, the hope is that this research will continue to progress and lead to a rescheduling of MDMA so that it may be utilized as a prescription medicine by the year 2021. Welcome to the near future. MDMA, or 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine, was first synthesized in 1912 by Merck. In 1976, it was introduced to psychedelic chemist and pioneer to Leo Zeff, a psychologist in Oakland, California. Leo used small doses of the substance in his practice as an aid to talk therapy and introduced it to hundreds of psychologists across the nation. Sasha went on to develop over 200 novel psychedelic compounds right here in Lafayette, California, just on the other side of the East Bay Hills, at his home lab, and tested them on himself and his wife, Anne Shulgin, and a very close group of friends who were willing to experiment. He and Anne went on to publish two books. P.C.A.L. and T.C.A.L. which stand for phenethylamines I have known and loved and tryptamines I have known and loved. Hmm. Phenethylamines and tryptamines are two of the main groups of psychoactive substances. There are others, but many of the classic psychedelics fall into those two broad uh, chemical categories. Sasha continued to express his love and interest for chemistry and psychedelics up until his um, death just about two and a half years ago. And I was very fortunate to spend his last Easter with him in 2014. Um, He was a very bright, bright, witty, brilliant man with a very sweet soul. And my last potent memory of him was kneeling down by his side And at this point, he was in and out of states of lucidity and sometimes slightly verbal and often not very verbally engaging. Um, So I knelt down by his side at Easter, and I just wanted to watch what he was watching. And I saw this wonderful excitement in his eyes as he watched these two little girls run around tasting Easter candy or something and he was just so fascinated and inspired by their little young lives and uh, I just had my hand on his um, leg and I just said you know thank you so much and I just cried he gave us a lot of really wonderful gifts Leo Zeff who was introduced to MDMA by Sasha Shulgin and then introduced it to countless other therapists ultimately around the whole world, went on to work with all sorts of numerous, con- uh, numerous psychedelics in a therapeutic context and truly inspired an entire world of underground psychedelic assisted therapy. There's a fabulous book called The Secret Chief Revealed that talks about his life and gives a very personal experience of what he was like. <laughs> Dr. Michael Mithoffer, a psychiatrist in South Carolina, and his wife, Annie, conducted the first recent randomized controlled pilot study on the safety and efficacy of MDMA for patients with chronic treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. Their initial results published in 2011 reported that 83% of the active treatment group experienced clinical benefit. The results of their long-term follow-up study published in 2012 reported that the majority of the the subjects with previously severe PTSD who were unresponsive to existing treatments had relief from their symptoms that persisted over time and that no one reported harm from participating in the study. Some participants had been living with PTSD for over 20 years and now they had their lives back. MDMA research is specifically important and promising in the veteran population, a population so tragically plagued with PTSD, depression, and high suicide rates. The Department of Veteran Affairs research indicates that the rate of suicide in the veteran population has surpassed the number of deaths on the battlefield, with an average of 20 veterans committing suicide every day. There were 7,400 veteran suicides in 2014 alone. There are currently two first-line treatments for PTSD that are endorsed by the VA. Um, These are two forms of psychotherapy, cognitive processing therapy, and prolonged exposure therapy. However, a review in 2015 of almost 1,000 participants in randomized clinical trials utilizing these two forms of treatment, reported that although some study participants reported a decrease in their symptoms, two-thirds of them still met the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Two-thirds still met the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. That's not an effective enough therapy it's inadequate. Despite being first-line treatments, they're simply not effective a majority of the time. And there really is a great need for more effective treatment for veterans who are suffering in this way. And MDMA is a promising option. Anthony, Iraq war veteran and study participant, said about his MDMA therapy, The military does a great job of turning you into a soldier, of teaching you how to control your reactions. And it is hard to turn those habits off. The feeling I got was nothing at all for 45 minutes. And then really bad anxiety. And I was fighting it at first. And then, I don't know how to put it exactly, I felt okay and messed up at the same time. Clear. It was almost like I could go into any thought I wanted and fix it. I'm a different person because of it. Dr. Mithofer has said about MDMA therapy, it's not that people just have a blissed-out experience and feel great about the world. A lot, of time, a lot of the time it's revisiting the trauma, and it's a painful, difficult experience. But the MDMA seems to make it possible for them to do it effectively. Donna Kilgore, rape victim, PTSD patient, and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study participant, reports in reference to her experience, it meant the world to me to be able to look at the fear, to look at the shame. When I got out of that session, I felt 100 pounds lighter. MDMA gave me the ability not to fear fear. Researcher Marcela Otolora says, with MDMA, you not only see your fear, but you trust yourself to go past it. It allows you to access a place in your mind that's compassionate and full of love. You might have abandoned that place, but it never abandoned you. I had the pleasure of dining and speaking with Dr. Michael Mithofer about his passion for MDMA research after the second psychedelic conference in Oakland in 2013. It was really fantastic to um, just witness his excitement. Again, a sense of childlike wonder that I saw in Sasha's eyes as he talked about the benefits that he observed in his patients and the wonderful lasting results that people were reporting at that point in the research. After that dinner and upon returning to the conference hotel, I was walking to the exhibit hall to make sure that my team on the healing arts crew had sufficiently cleaned up all of our gear and pieced themselves back together. And while I was walking down the hall, I saw two very clearly disabled men um, walking towards me. They stopped and one gentleman asked me about the conference, telling me how excited he was to learn about this doctor from South Carolina sharing that they were veterans and expressing his hope that MDMA might help with his PTSD. I found myself poised at a point in the universe where one man's hunger met another man's passion. As I looked at them, I thought, this could be anyone's brother, anyone's son or father, and my heart cracked open. Through this man's sharing of his vulnerability, was born in intimacy between us, and therein blossomed the flower of empathy. I propose that this process of coursing the trajectory from vulnerability to intimacy, and ultimately empathy, may be one of the therapeutic mechanisms of psychedelic experiences. Research professor Brené Brown states that vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity, and change. While sitting with our vulnerability, we are able to cultivate, to cultivate intimacy with ourselves, with others, and with the whole universe. This intimacy can lead to a recognition of self as other and other as self. And what naturally derives is empathy and a desire to care for others as we would like to be cared for. From this heightened place of empathy, we begin a process of healing on the microcosmic level of our individual beings, which has the potential to influence the macrocosm. The personal work we do to acknowledge, be with, and release fears, to remove obstacles to love's presence, to open to connection with ourselves, each other, and the universe, can bring about transformation for each of us, for the planet and for all of her inhabitants. There are, of course, other possible explanations for the therapeutic mechanisms of psychedelics. For example, it is commonly accepted in the research community that most psychedelics stimulate a serotonin receptor in the brain known as 5-HT2A, yet they also stimulate a wide variety of other brain receptors, the complex, unique constellation of which may account for their similar and diverse therapeutic potentials and effects. Neuroscientist and psychedelic researcher at the Royal Imperial College, London, Robin Carhart-Harris, has conducted extensive fMRI studies which have monitored the brain function of study participants under the influence of psilocybin and LSD. He and his team have found that psychedelics increase communication and connectivity across the entire brain, and that they reduce activity in the default mode network. The default mode network, as Carhart-Harris describes, is a part of the brain which we think of as the best candidate that we have for the biological underpinnings of the sense of self. Furthermore, it is thought that when the DMN, or default mode network, is overactive, it can produce rigid patterns of thought and contribute to conditions like depression. If psychedelics help to quiet this part of the brain, then perhaps they allow more fluid patterns of thought, open-mindedness, and curiosity to arise and thrive. Psilocybin research, spearheaded by the Hefter Institute and the USONA Institute in the United States, has shown amazing results for the treatment of existential anxiety associated with terminal illness, as well as in the treatment of tobacco, cocaine, and alcohol abuse. As John Hopkins University researcher, Roland Griffiths states, a life-threatening cancer diagnosis can be psychologically challenging, with anxiety and depression as very common symptoms. People with this kind of existential anxiety often feel hopeless and are worried about the meaning of life and what happens upon death. Griffiths and the Johns Hopkins Group reported that psilocybin decreased clinician and uh, patient-rated depressed mood, anxiety, and death anxiety, while increasing the quality of life, life meaning, and optimism. This is research that was um, recently published at the end of last year, and that demonstrated that six months after the final treatment session... About 80% of the participants continue to show clinically significant de- decreases in depressed mood and anxiety, with about 60% showing symptom remission into the normal range. Two-thirds of the participants reported the experience as being one of the top five meaningful experiences of their lives, and about 70% reported the experiences as one of the top five spiritually significant lifetime events Not only did the study participants experience significant reduction in their symptoms of depression and anxiety they were able to be more present with their family and friends for the remainder of their time on the planet Estelin Walkoff cancer patient and NYU study participant shares a bit about her experience The worst pain and the worst fear and the worst anxiety turned into something that has opened, which is the most precious thing that I have ever known, a sense of connectedness that runs through all of us. The fear, as it decreased, transformed itself into this open heart which was able to receive these lessons. She goes on to say, The other day while I was meditating, I had this feeling coming over me and the thought was of compassion for myself. That touches me the most. That's such a gift to have that moment of grace that I'm okay, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay, I'm okay. I am so grateful and touched and shocked and it has lasted and I think it will bring more changes. If in the future this could be used with all patients under the direction of mentors, shamans, psychotherapists, it would make for a much happier world. While most of the clinical research taking place is using relatively moderate doses of psychedelics, an area that has recently gained interest in the press is microdosing, taking very small, sub-perceptual amounts of a psychedelic. As lawyer and writer Ayolette Waldman has recently shared publicly about her experimentation with microdoses of LSD in hopes of relieving long standing depression, I had a really good day. <laughs> the first in as long as I could remember. It was like this heavy, dark weight lifted off my shoulders. Jim Fadiman avid supporter of microdosing and author of the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, was one of the early researchers at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Menlo Park. He and Myron Stolaroff and other researchers conducted lots of research in the early to mid-60s and the use of psychedelics for creativity and problem solving. He and his colleagues were elated by the results of their participants in improving their scores on esteemed creativity tests and in experiencing significant breakthroughs with their professional problems. Fadiman refers to the work of John Markoff, a science reporter for the New York Times, who interviewed Steve Jobs and documented the impact that psychedelics had for Jobs and others on the development of the personal computer. Markoff uh, wrote a a fun book called What the Dormouse Said, if you want to learn more about that. At his 100th birthday celebration in 2006, avid microdoser Albert Hoffman, the Swiss chemist who synthesized LSD-25, said, LSD wanted to tell me something. It gave me an inner joy, an open-mindedness, a gratefulness open eyes and an internal sensitivity for the miracles of creation. The possibilities for where psychedelics can guide us in our healing and creativity are endless. Of particular interest to me is the holistic approach to optimizing psychedelic experiences. Taking into account the support we can derive from preparation and integration practices such as thinking about our diet, ideally eating an organic, live, whole foods diet, utilizing herbs in the forms of teas and tonics, specific nutritional supplements, aromatherapy, sound healing, and more. I offer the following questions for your consideration. What circumstances and practices Sustain the use of psychedelics in a way that is healthy and beneficial for participants and the community? How can we develop and caretake a wisdom culture that will allow for the, incorpor- the incorporation of these tools into our individual and communal healthcare practices and traditions? I believe it is possible to reimagine a way of being in this world which allows us to see and honor our embeddedness within the web of creation, to treat all beings with reverence, to care for others in the earth as we would like to be cared for, and to open ourselves to the miracles which await us when we avail ourselves to them. I believe that psychedelics are sacred technology that can catalyze this process, and that the promise of psychedelic healing will revolutionize the future of medicine. Thank you.
0: the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.